Hello, this is Dirk Hare. I'm a partner in the Fox Rothschild Washington DC office and co-chair of the National Construction Practice Group. This is the second in a series of construction conversations with industry leaders that I'm co-hosting with Brian Perlberg. Brian is head of AGC's contract documents and consensus documents programs. This series came about from a few conversations over the last few months that Brian and I have been having about trying to bring some new and innovative content to the construction industry generally. It's also to highlight AGC and its efforts in leadership in the contract documents program and the consensus docs that are produced by the team of volunteers at AGC. In this series of podcasts, we will be talking with industry leaders about their professional careers, their personal lives, and their AGC involvement. In our first podcast, we featured Les Snyder, who is currently leading the Brightline West high-speed train program in Las Vegas and is the Senior Vice President of National AGC. In our second episode, we're excited to have Tracy Hart, President of Tarleton Corporation, join us. Tracy, thank you for joining us. And to get us going, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? Well, thanks, Dirk and Brian, for inviting me. So I am from St. Louis. I grew up here in West County, went to hear the, the famous question is, where'd you go to high school? I went to high school at Parkway West, and then I got accepted into the University of Michigan and went away to school there and got my bachelor's degree in English and communication. And once you graduated from the University of Michigan, what was your first job? I had a series of jobs while I looked for a job. I wanted to live in Chicago. I wanted to be in marketing and public relations. And my father, who was the president of Tarleton at the time, said, construction companies have marketing departments. Why don't you look for a job with a construction company? So I interviewed with Pepper Construction Company and got a job as a marketing coordinator, much to my chagrin. And then I found that I really loved construction. Yeah, that's terrific. And Pepper Construction, as many of our listeners know, is, a, is another great long-term AGC family. Well, and it was interesting. One of the things that happened early in my career was my family had planned as happened back in the day. My family had planned a vacation around an AGC convention that was happening. And my father reached out to Richard Pepper and said, if I pay for Tracy's expenses, will you register her for the AGC convention? And so I started getting involved in AGC at that time. Oh, that's great. Growing up in a construction family, did you always plan to have a construction as a career or was it at Pepper that you first became? No, I didn't want to be an engineer. I didn't want to live in St. Louis. I didn't want to have anything to do with this industry. I was a little rebellious. But what I found when I got started at Pepper was that I just truly loved it. And I knew more than I thought I knew. It is a funny, it's a funny thing. And I liken it to, we always have to walk through the door that's open for us. And you just don't know what you don't know. And I have never regretted a single moment of those choices. And it was interesting. You know, I, after working for Pepper, I, I got to learn a lot about construction because I would write about it, whether it was in the pursuit of a project or cataloging what had transpired on that job or what was interesting. And I'd get to go to job sites, et cetera. And after about five years at working for Pepper and advancing in my career, my husband comes home one day and he says, hey, I got a job offer in St. Louis. And I was like, I know a construction company there. And that's how I got back to St. Louis. Oh, that's great. And how did your career progress after you got back to St. Louis? Right. When I got back, they really needed project engineers. And I said, I'm not an engineer. I'm an English and communications major. But what I really want to do is learn about the processes that go into building so that we can focus on repeat business and new business development. And so for the first year and a half, I worked on tenant build-outs, which are, you know, not 
terribly complex and learned about the processes. And hence, we would say if Tracy can figure it out, anyone can figure it out. So it was really a super opportunity to learn from the ground up. And then I focused in on client service work. And at that time, AGC was looking at partnering as an avenue for success, which I thought parlayed right into that repeat business component, you know, where we could be less adversarial, more focused in our resolution of issues. And then later became engaged in the whole total quality management period that was going on. I guess it was back in the early 90s, but that was all about focusing on the customer first. And we really changed our direction as a company to really be client focused. And kind of looking more toward your day in, day out concerns today, some say the top three issues in construction are workforce, workforce, and workforce. What's your view on the workforce issue and other issues that keep you up at night? I mean, we need people. We need people who want to be carpenters, laborers, iron workers, et cetera, et cetera. And we need people that want to be engineers. And I think it's our responsibility as contractors to create the most attractive environment we can for everyone to participate in. And one of the things I'm really proud of that Tarleton's done is to help create that environment where people who might have been disenfranchised from this industry feel more comfortable engaging. We do a ton of outreach and we're finding people in some of the most unusual ways and then helping them succeed in this industry because sometimes it's not somebody's first choice of a career and getting them engaged and enthused and wanting to come to work and work hard on a consistent basis and be challenging. It's just in a different environment. And I think it's going to lead to innovations in how we do more with less. What are some of the most interesting projects that in Tarleton's history that you've worked on? And what about looking today? Of course, I love all my children. And there are not favorite projects, but there are memorable ones. And over the years, some of those have been like the coal and barge unloading system that we did for our public utility, Ameren, all the way to we just finished the primate canopy trails that are really new. We've done expansions to our art museum and to our municipal theater. But then we've also done some very cool life science work that has helped advance research in our community. We've done historic renovations for just breathing new life into these old buildings that companies have decided to invest in. And that's really fun like 900 North Tucker or in the Cortex District, which is our innovation district. And that has been a source of a lot of development, a lot of fun. I think so in terms of projects, it's also in terms of clients because I'm a people person and we have just gotten to work with some of the most talented people in the community who really have a passion for this business. And I feel like we're really fortunate in being able to do that. How are inflation, supply shortages, climate change and other current issues affecting Tarleton and the projects you're working on? I'll start with climate change first. Climate change is an interesting one. We do a lot of work for utilities and watching them embrace alternative energy opportunities has been really interesting and we're enjoying that. We also see just the whole distribution of power and energy become a very important topic. How do we keep that infrastructure strong? And then, of course, we see it in that people looking more as uh, into sustainability, which I think has been around, gosh, for at least 20 years now. And so it's nice to see that continue and not just be a fad, but really looking at how do we develop carbon neutral buildings or how do we 
reduce our carbon footprint. In terms of inflation and supply chain, we're definitely seeing a slowdown in what I would call developer-driven work as interest rates go up and the cost of money goes up and the pricing goes up. We're finding that people now have to adjust their pro forma to this new environment we're in. Supply chain, of course, continues to be an issue. And I can only imagine what Hurricane Ian will do to that. We're already seeing lumber prices go up again. They say it'll be up as high as during COVID period. This isn't a bright and sunny picture, but it's one that I, again, I hope that through our own ingenuity, we will, as an industry, come up with new ideas and ways to combat this and still deliver great projects on time. My biggest fear today is that we're developing some very convenient excuses for not delivering things when they need to be delivered. Percy, that's a, a great issue that you mentioned about Hurricane Ian and how that's going to impact supply chain and price escalation. From my perspective, price escalation and supply chain disruption is actually for construction law issue number one, and it's been front and center for over a year now. Recently, and you mentioned a water utility project, the AGC of Missouri and AGC National teamed up to work with the St. Louis Water District to use some price escalation in their contract for a project that they put out to bid that was pretty sizable. I think it was close to 160 million. And I think that they're looking at doing an additional 500 million. I mean, guess my question from you is, what do you think about including price escalation language in a contract by a public owner? Does it help make a difference? I think we have to have price escalation language in there because it's so uncertain as to what's going to happen when a project reaches a magnitude of that and may span several years. How are you going to combat that? I mean, lumber alone, had you bid that project and you had no opportunity for any kind of price escalation, what would have transpired during the course of that project if it escalated 100% or something like that, something crazy. But I'm an advocate of let's put that price escalation below the line. This doesn't need to be included. Nobody needs to win from a fee perspective on price escalation. Let's put this as a fact of life that's in there because otherwise it's extremely risky to gamble on it for both the owner and the contractor. If you could wave a magic wand, in addition to just a price escalation clause, what would you do to help things improve in this area? I'd go back to workforce (laughs) because I think a lot can be solved if we have the people that are energized and enthused to help it be solved. If I had a magic wand, I might mess things up. (laughs) (laughs) Tracy, what was it like growing up in an AGC family? You know, my grandfather was the first president of our local AGC chapter. And so it's something that you always grew up as that's what my parents did. Their vacations were built around that. And my dad was very enthusiastic about the industry. And again, I go back to, I think I picked up more than I realized just by being in the room. It was a bit of a fraternity, quite literally, when I got started. There weren't a whole lot of women in the room at the convention. And I'm happy to see that there are more and more women engaged in our industry in a leadership position. I learned a ton. You know, not being an engineer was like my gateway to education as a contractor. I went to STP courses, the superintendent training program courses that the AGC offered. I went to everything at the convention. I never goofed off. I like checked everything off my list. (laughs) And then, you know, you got involved in leadership and got to help make decisions about policy and things going forward, which was great to be at that table. 
I think you and I first met in the nineties at an AGC convention. And one of my recollections of you and your brother, Dirk, and your dad is a very hotly contested vote. I believe it was probably 1997 on the AIA 201. I believe it was a hotly contested debate over owner financial information clause and I remember you siding with Ralph Johnson, who was such an icon within AGC on that vote and voting against your brother and your dad. What do you recall about that? <laughs> well, I recall everyone got a good chuckle out of that. And it was okay. I feel, you know, I feel fortunate that I was empowered to be an independent thinker. And that was super. But yeah, it was we just had different points of view. And probably if I were to go back into history, I would say, you know, one was more what I would call the lump sum general contractor view. And the other part was more the construction management component point of view. Yeah, that was a big crowded room. <laughs> it was a very big crowded room. It was my first tournament. I was a little embarrassed, but oh well. Oh, well. I always enjoyed my relationship with Ralph Johnson as well. We both learned when, shortly after we met each other that we were both from Indiana. And every time I saw Ralph, he would make some reference to Indiana. He was great. And what a wonderful place to learn from these, uh, I would call them industry sages, like a Ralph Johnson or a Doug Pruitt. There's just so many smart people. And I just, gosh, I just was a sponge. Going back to Charles, and I believe it's a closely held business. And I'm just curious as to when it was founded and how it's evolved over the decades. Yeah, it's founded in 1946. My grandfather and three other partners bought it. It was in a state, had one active contract. And shortly thereafter, my grandfather bought out his other three partners. It was a more industrial contractor and over the years evolved, I would say in, up until the 80s, it was probably a lump sum, slug them out type of company. And then they started getting some more negotiated work. While we were never in the highway division, we did cross over the MU division and land the building division. <laughs> so I feel like we, we did get to see a lot of the different things that AGC offered. My father ran the company starting in 1972. And then Dirk and I took over the management of the company in 1999. And I'll tell a quick Dirk story. So for our podcast listeners, Dirk Kelsperman, Tracy's brother, and I have been in a lot of HEC meetings together. And we learned pretty quickly that you'd be in a meeting, you'd be sitting there half paying attention, and then you'd hear somebody say Dirk. And with a name like Dirk, you usually are the only one. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Sometimes we, either one of us would get a quick jolt because we hear our name and it, it would turn out that they were referring to the other Dirk. And the other one would have a sigh of relief. Yeah. We had a lot of good times at AGC and in those meetings. Well, hold on, Dirk. So if there's ever a time that you and Dirk were on different sides of the aisle and an issue like Tracy and her family, you would say Dirk doesn't agree with himself. <laughs> we got the most special Dirk AGC moment of all. And Tracy, I'm sure you remember the Young Constructors Forum. Yep. And so we were in Phoenix at an, a YCF meeting and there was a third Dirk who agended. He was from Kansas and he was so befuddled by the whole thing that your brother often says he never came to another AGC meeting because he just couldn't handle it. <laughs> too many Dirk. Just too many Dirk. Kind of circling back to your experience and career, there are obviously are not a lot of women who are CEOs of a mid-sized or large construction company. What challenges have you faced and what opportunities have you been able to take advantage of given your role? 
the challenges are the classic challenges that any woman in a male-dominated, you know, industry had. There were people that were not necessarily welcoming, some that were just plain insulting. But by and large, our industry, you get what you give. And I choose to focus on our similarities. You know, if I'm passionate about construction and you're passionate about construction, it doesn't matter what we look alike or what our genders are. So why can't we bind ourselves together by those common interests? I think what it has afforded us the opportunity to take advantage of is to show other women and other people disenfranchised by our industry that there's a place for you and you can succeed and you can attain great heights in this industry. I think that has been super we are a women business enterprise by virtue of the fact that we have another sister who has a majority share in the business as well. I think that has given us the opportunity also to attract other diverse firms to do business with us. Again, back to that, oh, they might understand what that's like. It never guarantees any work, but it certainly helps open the door and give us a voice. And we hope that if everything's equal, it's frosting on the cake, that we can get the nod. But I'm surprised that there aren't more women in the C-suite at this stage. We were certified in 2004. I would have thought by now this wouldn't be a thing, and it still is. So maybe by 2030, it won't be a thing anymore. I hope you're right, but I think that there's a long road ahead. Sometimes when you think you're successful in an area, that road sometimes is longer than you think. And speaking of success, you know, one of the things that I hear for being competitive and successful in today's marketplace as a construction company is that you need to either focus on being big and full service and having economies of scale, or to be successful, you need to almost go small so you can be laser focused on doing something better than anybody else in the marketplace. I kind of wonder as a medium-sized company, what do you see as Tarleton's advantage in the marketplace? So I think for us, the advantage that we see is that we like to do tough projects. You're not going to see us in a four up, four cross in a cornfield. That difficulty is hard. We also are laser focused on our customers and how can we serve them to the best of our ability. We are predominantly in the St. Louis region and we'll travel for our customers, but we're not looking. And we think part of what we lend to the equation is our high touch. But we are the one they always talk about, that we're either going to get acquired or go out of business because we're in the middle. And yet, I think the other part is that we do provide, and going back to that workforce question, a mid-sized company can provide an opportunity for growth along with a sense of belonging. And I think there's so many things that we can offer that maybe are more attractive to a person in the industry today than a very large company could offer or a very small company can offer. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think that you probably play an outsized role in your market, even though you might be a medium-sized company, you can compete with the big boys and girls. Oh, all the time. Yeah, all the time. And in fact, we have a very nice market share because that is the bulk of our focus. You know, a lot of the big giants don't get up for less than a hundred million. Well, know? speaking of a variety, <laughs> I understand that you're the CEO, not just of Tarleton, but a subsidiary specialty contractor. And I'm curious, why'd you make the move? And is there anything that you're surprised from the vantage point of a specialty contractor and how they look at things and how they operate. It's been really fun. So we purchased Water Out three years ago. They're a carpentry company and it's a small office, 12 to 14 people. And then we have a hundred carpenters and they are, back to your previous question, they are laser focused on car carpentry. That's all they do. We got interested in them. We had known their owner for a long time. In fact, she was one of the big trailblazers and role models for me, Renee Bell, in our industry here locally. She really had 
opened some doors for women. And they were also the gold standard. We couldn't compete with the work they did with their carpenters. We just could not execute it as well as they did, as efficiently as they did, or as profitably as they did. And so it's been really interesting to sit in on, to participate in their meetings and to understand their focus on their customers, how they deliver it. So just a different method of delivery. We thought it would be similar, but smaller. And it's just a different process altogether. And it's interesting because Waterout has always enjoyed its relationship with AGC and looks to that as their primary educational resource, which has also been interesting because there's other choices for subcontractors. Yeah, I think we have more specialty contractors who are members of AGC than there are general contractors. I could be wow. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. And we've changed our bylaws where specialty contractors can play a much bigger role in the leadership of AGC and being president of AGC. I guess I would be remiss not to ask you, though, from the vantage point of the specialty contractor, is there anything that sort of strikes you on the contract and the risk side? Because I'm always hearing that well, people think that risk management should be you give the party with the best position to manage risk, it usually just flows down to the lowest man person in the totem pole who is the last man standing on the contract chain. Yeah. <laughs> and often our work is at the end, we'll have parts and pieces that are at the end of the job. It is about managing that risk and it's about being timely in your notification of when things change and staying away from bad work. I feel very fortunate that Waterout has a well-run office. You know, they are like the flywheel. I mean, they just have processes that they do over and over again that help mitigate that risk. But you're right. It, it all runs downhill. Tracy, what do you see as the future of construction? That's really a good question. It's hard for me to envision construction without people. I don't think our workforce issues are ever going to go away. I think it's going to continue to beleaguer us and we're going to have to figure out innovative ways to deliver what we do, and we see some of those innovations today. You know, there's the engineering component, but there's also just the massive coordination and the speed to market that people have when they want to get something up and running. I do think we're going to see a lot of repurposing of outdated modes of way people work. Just look at how many office buildings aren't full today. You know, will they ever be full again? I don't know. I think it's going to continue to be a wonderful place. You know, you talk to anybody in the field, in the office, they love seeing something get built and be completed. That tangible execution, that tangible feeling of pride and look what we did as a team. Sure. What are some of the efforts or initiatives you and Charlton have been involved with in the greater St. Louis area? How do you view the role of Charlton in helping community? Well, I think it's incumbent upon any company that's headquartered in their community to make it better. And you don't have to be the biggest guy in the room. There's a place for everybody at that table. So we get very engaged civically. We participate in improving our region through called Greater St. Louis, Inc. And it's a conglomeration of our chamber and our economic development group and our business community to help advance our community. We think it's important to not only do that, but to volunteer in philanthropy. How do we help advance key areas of our industry. For instance, I sit on the board of our children's hospital, which I've done for quite some time, which has been fascinating, but you get a greater appreciation for some of the areas that are in need of service. And so we have a responsibility, I think, to help 
those who have less than. And that can be on that big corporate level, but that can also be, you know, doing a philanthropic day at a food bank or something like that, that we can engage everybody. We've got a group of us that build ramps periodically for folks that are handicapped. And it's just everybody doing their own small part that makes your region stronger. We don't shirk away from that at all. We lean into that and look at that as our responsibility. What's something about yourself, a hobby or something else that might surprise our listeners? If your listeners know me, you know that I love to be outside. I love to bike. I like to run. I like to paddleboard. Whatever it is, I love being outside. What they may not know is that I'm also an avid Michigan fan. I went to school there. My son went to school there. My other son is a huge fan. And I love all that Go Blue stuff. What do you think about the Big Ten adding UCLA and USC? It's really going to mess up the whole schedule for football, isn't it? Am I going to have to watch games late at night because it's over on the West Coast? Yeah, you know, it's like the Big Ten and the SEC and then some other guys. I'm not, I don't know. I liked it when we had our rivalries. I liked it when we played the same team over and, you know, what do I know? As we wrap up our second construction conversations, industry leader podcast, what is the best advice that you can share that helps you become such a successful industry leader? Keep advocating for this industry. Keep advocating for getting engaged and making it a better place for people to work. Do your small part to engage your community and use the talents that we have to advance your areas because it takes all of us. And remembering that construction is a team sport. It does take all of us, and that's the beauty of it. It isn't just one person or another. Tracy, you mentioned that you're a Michigan fan and your Michigan team beat my Maryland Terps in football. We gave you a run for your money, surprisingly. But before we go, I can't resist to ask you a question. Dirk and I have gone to a baseball game together once or twice, and it's baseball playoff season. Any predictions on how the Cardinals will do or who might win the MVP race in the National League? Oh, gosh. It has been so much fun to watch Cardinal baseball, you know, with Yachty and Wayno and Albert. It's just an incredible group. And that's not even talking about the superstars like Goldie and Arenado. It's just, and, and we got young guys. If we don't go all the way, gosh, when will we? Albert's on fire. He's just on fire. And that is just incredible to see. I can't imagine anybody else that could win that <laughs> MVP. Yeah, I'm a little biased. <laughs> Just a little. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today. I think Brian and I uh, do get to a Washington Nationals Baltimore Orioles game now and again, and we disagree on who we root for. Brian's a big O's fan, and I'm a big Nats fan. But we do share a common interest in the Baltimore Ravens and also have a chance to tailgate together sometimes at Ravens games. We really appreciate you joining us, and this has been a lot of fun, and we look forward to catching up with you at an AGC meeting sometime soon. Great. Thanks so much, Dirk and Brian. I appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Tracy.